Good evening, thank you guys for joining Tick Tonight's Youth Group. Um, without Paul here, we decided that we would do a question and answer. So up here we have Stephen Kessner, Deacon here at First Family. We have Nick Neves, Elder here at First Family. First Family. <laughs> okay, so um, like always, we definitely come to these times because we want you guys to be able to bring questions that you guys either are thinking about or something that you've heard or just something that you're maybe wrestling with that you would like some clarification on. Um, we look to give you guys the best answers that, that the word can provide. Uh, we also recognize that we are not omniscient, so there will be some stuff that we don't know. If you come across something that you ask that we don't have a good answer for, I know that Clint and I, since they here with us tonight, he would do the same thing. We can go back, really try to figure out your answer and be able to give it to you next time. So... Uh, without further ado, let's get on with the first question. So the locusts in Revelation 9 through 13 were representative of demonic power that has been unleashed upon the earth as part of Satan's um, opposition to the work that Christ is doing in this about the locusts, you're not supposed to think like there's some physical manifestation of something that's going on in today's world. Like some people have tried to say that the locusts must mean helicopters because they buzz and they appear to people. It's not actually the case. There are no symbolic representation of uh, the demons and principalities, the powers of the air that um, we know the church is warned against. Talking about, we're talking about things that can't really be seen, but they are spiritual forces that are trying to enact wickedness among um, among the men of America. Does that clarify enough? Mm -hmm. question? Do people just stay anonymous in their questions? I'm new to this. Yeah, yeah, most of the time. Yeah. 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 Like, 
different little deities or they are trusting in some sort of like overall spirit that's being changed. It, it is still a thing. Yes. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Wiccan before. Have you heard of Wiccan? Wiccan is one of the ways that the enemy tries to disguise dangerous demonic kind of activities by making it seem almost like naturalistic. So there are people today that would say that their religion is Wicca. And so they would call themselves Wiccans. And they believe that there is natural power to be tapped into in the world. And some of it may have like a magical feel to it. And so. It's really just taking age-old principles that there are forces of darkness at play, and sometimes those forces of darkness can do things that natural laws don't necessarily have explanations for, and they're hiding it in kind of like a politically correct sort of religious format. So we need to be careful. The enemy does want us to fall into traps where we begin to let our guard down and think that stuff like that is harmless, but the Bible consistently speaks against Warlocks and witches, and anybody who would practice magic in such a way that they're looking for supernatural power outside. We live in a society where that that stuff is looked at as something positive because it's contrary to what the Bible teaches. Um, and it is the, the like many in this world today now look at that as something that's palatable. They look at it as something neat and interesting rather than recognizing that it is demonic and it's something that that will pull people from like focus on the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so Ouija boards that's another thing, like um, I think it was Milton Bradley, he's the maker of like the common board games that you probably are pretty familiar with. Uh, at one point back in I think it was the late seventies or early eighties they sort of tapped into like a growing interest in occult things and made a board game that's basically uh, modeled off after kind of like a dark way of trying to communicate with dead spirits, which is really just a smoke screen for demons trying to influence us. And this, this board was made so that you move a marker around and you're not supposed to push the, the marker around. It's supposed to just move itself as you touch it gently and then Supposedly, dead people can communicate to you. You're like, wait a second, Milton Bradley made this? Yeah. What's well, there'd going be letters on, on, the, on the board, and yeah. went, the circle would Move go over the letter, and it would be and you'd spell it out like a, like a code. And so, uh, you know, like, a culture is trying to make these things seem like playful, innocent things that even kids can get involved in, and really it's an open door to a lot more dark kind of activity that you guys should really be to and aware of. There is a lot of darkness in the world, and that darkness would love to trip you up. It's a great opportunity. So there's so much stuff that caught up in that kind of thing. I remember when I was younger, people would play a game called Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Door, where they would have one person lay down, and then all of them would put their hands underneath that person, and then they would slowly, like, easily lift the person up really high in the air. It was almost like I was just tapping into an injury kind of thing. So there's, there's a lot of weird kind of Almost like messing around, putting your toe in, just dipping your toe in a little bit, the dark stuff of the world. And that, that just makes you kind of drop your defenses and become more vulnerable. 
Like you're talking about a cartridge where you're hiding this, like, I know the cartridge. I think all that's in the category of solution. It's just tricks. It's not even really pretending to be like real magic. I mean, everybody knows that there are. visions, they would receive special revelation from God, and then they would communicate that to the people as a way of saying, this is what the Lord is trying to help us to see and understand. But it says that in these days, that that kind of communication is a thing of the past, that it's no longer the way that God speaks to us, that he has spoken to us through his son. And the apostles in the New Testament who followed Christ and communicated his words to us um, were a part of that as well. So because we have the scriptures, which is sufficient for us, which tells us everything that we need uh, for, for godliness and for righteousness, it's all contained in the scriptures, there is no need for God to really show us through visions or special revelation what we need anymore. We have the book, and it's, the book is not only never wrong, but it is everything that we need. Does it tell you everything you would want to know? No, not necessarily. There might be some things that you guys ask in a Q&A night, uh, like tonight, that God has chosen not to give us an answer for. And that's okay, because we don't have to know everything. But everything that a faithful believer needs to know has been given to us in the Scriptures. And I think today you've got to be careful, because there are those who would love to let other people believe that God is speaking directly to them, so that they might get more esteem or credit among people. People might think they're more holy, or that there's something special and about them that puts them above other Christians. And a lot of times that's really meant to deceive and to manipulate people. So um, does God speak to us through visions? He could if he wanted to, but the scripture lets us know straight away that he speaks to us through his word. And you know, especially if anybody ever comes up to you and says, Some, the Lord gave me a word <laughs> concerning your life. Please. The Lord 
Lord wants you to move to such and such state. He wants you to become a garbage man. You know? Then you might want to ask them, okay, well, where can you show me that? Because the scripture is all that I need. And God obviously hasn't told me that I'm supposed to move to such and such state and become a garbage man. So don't just receive that right away. Um, and, and you see this sometimes in more charismatic churches. People really wish that God would just speak directly to them instead of having to go to a book and read it and hear the message of God and, and think carefully about it. They'd rather just, the Lord just sort of do it the easy way and send you a direct message. But in reality, that's so more powerful. It's like, you look back at these stories where God's talking to Abraham, God's talking to Moses, and that must have been an incredible blessing to have that happen. And people want to feel that. They, they look at that as something miraculous. It is. But that's not the way that God has chosen to deal with his people from the New Testament onward. We have his word. We have his word all the time with us. We should look at the word as 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 miraculous as that is God gave to us for a reason. Again, I mean that's what you guys need to be in is to be God's got God's given this to you because he wants you to know who he is from the scripture. You want your life to be pulled in line with the image of the sun. So there are, are some Christian denominations that would still tell you that, you know, God is giving prophetic words to people today, uh, but there's a really strong argument to be made that that's not happening, and that when you hear people trying to make that argument, that it, you got to be careful that they might not, that they might be trying to manipulate you. God has given the church many good spiritual gifts, and many of them are still active and very, very useful at hospitality and service. Some people are particularly generous. Um, others are really great at mercy. Some are very blessed with administrative skills, like they know how to organize, and that's a blessing for the church. But the gifts that are considered sign gifts, like speaking in tongues, and prophetic revelation, or the gift of, of healing, like physical healing, where you put your hands before and you're healed, those were special gifts that were used in the New Testament to identify people who were particularly anointed to do that foundational work in the New Testament church. There's a group that's putting out a really good documentary that you heard about just recently called Cessationists, and it's going to be coming out in the next couple months. And so as a church, we might actually try to do that during Sunday evening service for a couple of weeks and show that. So I'd really encourage you guys, if you're interested for more information about that, come and watch that documentary and we have it because uh, it'll probably shed a lot of light on kind of your questions about the sign gifts and whether they have any real legitimacy today.
what's weird about that? Miracle healing. How's it different than other miracle healings that Jesus has done? Yeah, I mean, does it seem here like Jesus tried to heal a guy and kind of didn't, but <laughs> couldn't, and had to try again? <laughs> Is everybody blind from birth? So that's actually good investigative reading. You could probably like deduce from that that okay, this guy is blind, but he probably was injured or got sick and lost his sight because he knows what a tree looks like. Probably a good, good. Yeah. And the blind can well, I'm blind can touch it. Uh, Mark 8, 22 through 26. So, does that seem like Jesus was like not strong enough to heal him the first time? Everywhere else in the scripture where Jesus heals somebody, he heals them completely. So, why is it possible that Jesus healed this guy partway and then puts his hands on his eyes? It's a question worth answering, right? Sometimes in order to understand what's going on in the passage, you need to like read the context. So Clint, why don't you keep reading after verse 26 and see where Mark takes this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages to Syria so far. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And he told them, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he quickly tells them to tell no one about him. Okay, so what's going on in that passage of scripture, guys? What's Jesus trying to figure out? Probably already knows. What is he trying to help the disciples figure out? And why is that important? And if we accurately right, what were the other people around them thinking that Jesus maybe was? What were some of the things that the disciples mentioned that other people thought about Jesus? Maybe he was a the prophet come back from the dead, right? What else? Maybe John the Baptist. Okay, that was actually Herod's concern. You guys might remember that there was a king who was kind of wicked at the time. John the Baptist had like preached against him because he had divorced his wife and married his brother's wife, which was a scandal at the time. And so John the Baptist was like not ashamed to say, "Hey, that's sin. You guys shouldn't be doing that." And so John got arrested because of that. And then eventually Herod had John's head cut off. So John the Baptist gets beheaded, and there was some like rumors once Jesus starts like becoming more popular and his power is being displayed. Some people will say, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead to go after Herod, the guy who put him to death. So Herod thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist. And then other people said maybe he's one of the other prophets come back from the dead. So they were there were all these guesses happening, but none of those were right. Peter answers for the disciples and he gives the right answer, right? Who is Jesus? 
and God actually to Christ. You guys know what the word Christ means? Christ actually means anointed. It means the one sent of God. So it's the Greek form for the Hebrew word Messiah. You guys know Messiah is, right? The Savior to come, the anointed one of God. And so Peter and the disciples answered properly. They got it right. And that's, um, that's good. It's very important. But it doesn't really shed any light yet on the healing of the blind man. So let's read a little bit further. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Returning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You will not spend your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit the soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Spirit. So Peter, who had just like hit a home run on that final exam question, who do you say that I am, right? He got it right. But then what does he do that's so wrong right afterwards? So wouldn't it seem that the disciples are there, but they're not seeing the whole picture yet? They're only getting part of the truth. And they're growing in what they understand, but they don't see it quite clearly. So if you look back now to that story of the blind man who has a two-page healing, Mark puts that story right in front of this episode with the disciples. So that we'll see that these disciples are partway there. They're getting it but there's still much for them that they need to see. So it's not that Jesus could not heal the blind man in one shot. But he does it in two stages because he uses stories like this throughout his gospel to kind of set you up and bring you along so that you'll have a better understanding of what's actually going on in the history of his ministry. Does that make sense? So Mark's actually a really good writer. and He's, he's helping these those who read his gospel to understand that the disciples were coming along, they were getting it better, but they still had a lot yet to learn. And we know that Peter will eventually uh, learn that lesson kind of the hard way, right? What does he do when Jesus gets crucified? He turns his back on the Savior, and then when people like recognize him, like, hey, aren't you with Jesus? He denies it, even knows him three times. And so he's still, still struggling to really identify with the Lord. And Jesus, after he rises from the dead, has to actually actually has to uh, restore him and forgive him for that. And he does that uh, by telling him three times, uh, you love me, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs, bless me, my flock. So, so that's, uh, that's a question that a lot of people have about that verse. Why isn't Jesus able to heal him the first time? And he is, he just chooses not to, to kind of make a point and to show the disciples that they have a lot yet to learn before they can fully see it. Yeah. 
He doesn't bother to tell us what his direct mechanism is. I think the best way that we can say it is that he's sovereign, which means that however he chooses to so work, he ordains all things to work together for his plan. We don't get to see behind the curtain and see how all that works together, but we do know that there's nothing that happens outside of God's control. What if there was one part of God's universe that he wasn't in control of, that he wasn't, he didn't have authority over? Just like a one square block. One little piece of the universe that he wasn't in control of. Who's in control of that block? You know, that would be tragic, right? That would be super dangerous. If there's any part of the creation that God's not in control of, then can we really think of him as God? I mean, it's essential for our thoughts of God to think of him as being in control and having dominion over things. Otherwise, there might be something that rises up and becomes stronger than him at some point. But we have full confidence that that's never going to happen. That there's no one who has more power and control than God. So the Lord does work. I mean, we've got plenty of examples, in fact, of God working through people in the Old Testament this way. Do you remember when the southern kingdom of Judah is disobedient? Kind of like we've been talking about in Hosea, the northern kingdom was really disobedient. And so God allowed the Assyrians to come in and defeat them. We've been talking about that on Sunday morning. Or later on, like 150 years later, the southern kingdom does the same thing. They're super disobedient. And God allows another nation, the nation of Babylon, to come in and conquer them. And he says it very plainly through the first three or four chapters of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what was happening at the time. He thought he was just going to war and doing his thing. But it was actually Yahweh, the God of Israel, who was allowing him to have victory over his own people. Because God was determining that his people needed to be defeated so that their hearts would be humbled. And so later on, Nebuchadnezzar gets out and starts to like build a statue to himself and tell everybody that they have to bow down to it, and he gets way too big for his britches. And God actually makes him go crazy and forces him into insanity. And for seven years, King Nebuchadnezzar, they just sort of hide him in the royal garden, and he runs around and acts like an animal for seven years. His nails grow all long, and his hair is all straggly. For seven years, he's insane. He loses his mind. And after the seven years, God restores his ability to think. And he's just like, whoa, this God is way mightier than me. He took away my very ability to reason. And so God was using that man's ambition, military might, and power to do his will instead of Nebuchadnezzar's will. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know it, but he was being like piece of God's machine to move history along the way that needed to happen. And when Nebuchadnezzar started to get proud, he then humbled him and took away his, his, his reasoning. So we see a picture there of God's total power over everything that he's made. He has control, and we don't see how that works. So we have to act as though we have choices and we have freedoms and abilities, and to some degree we do, but God is always the first cause of everything. He's the one who created us in the first place, and made us able to think and speak, so nothing we do happens apart from God, but 
we do know that whatever we do do, God has also ordained that as well. Some people will say this. Well, that just means that we're all robots and that we don't have choices. I, I mean, I might push back on that and say we don't know. We know what God. We know what God wants us to do: to be obedient to Him and follow Him. But I don't know that God's saying that I should drive on the freeway at home, but I'm going to do it, or I'm going to drive whatever way. So we do have free will in the sense that we don't know the choices that are, that the Lord has decreed for us, but we do know what His will is for our lives, which is to be obedient and glorify Him. So we have some understanding of how we're to live, but if I sin, God didn't make me sin. I did it because my heart is wicked, and I will do bad things at times. But I don't know that God has said, you will yell at your wife. I did it because I sinned. God may have allowed that to happen, and then I'm being going to be called to repentance. But God did not make me do that, my wickedness. So, because I don't know what God has decreed for me, I do have free choice, and I could choose to not do that, or I could choose to do it, even as God already knows what choice I will make. What kind of responsibility? Let's think about the robot argument for a second. Because if we think about God being like in total control of all things, and then somebody comes back and says, well, if God's in control of all things, I guess I'm just a robot, so it doesn't matter what I do. What's wrong with that argument? And that's what Clint was talking about. We're going to be responsible for breaking his law. And if you have the capacity right now to choose to break his law or to not break his law, then choose not to break his law. Honor him. You know, show him the respect that he deserves. Don't just say, well, I'm just a robot, so I'm going to do whatever I do anyway, and then go and sin, because ultimately what you're doing is you're just blaming your sinfulness on God. And that's a, a really weak move. You know? The whole idea that we're just robots, it doesn't really play out in real life. It's, I have, I have, I could take this phone that belongs to Stephen right now, and I could spike it on the ground. That's a choice I could make, right? And if I do, Stephen's going to punch me in the face. So so I, I should probably not do I'm that. I'm just afraid that the recording won't work and I'll be ashamed again. <laughs> so, uh, so, like the whole robot thing, I, I think that robot argument just it doesn't work in real life. Because though we don't understand the sovereignty of God, we do have some freedom. It's not free will, because we can't do anything that we want. I can't fly into space right now, right? We're not absolutely free. But I do have free will. I can make choices. And those choices uh, are choices that ultimately I'll be responsible for when I come before the judgment of God. So, hopefully that clears up. You have the choice to be
And at the end of judgment, all of that wrongdoing that we choose to do will be made right through judgment. So it's not like the world ever gets out of its hands. For a time, he lets us see firsthand what wickedness does and what turning away from God does to us and does to our relationship. And every wicked act will be punished. It's going to be punished on somebody. Either us or on Christ. Or on Christ. I'm grateful that the Lord changes hearts so that we might trust in the Lord, so that our sin might be judged on Christ and not on ourselves. And knowing that Christ had to pay for my sin makes me want to not sin. It makes me want to do what is right and trust in the Lord to be more righteous and holy because I don't want Christ to have suffered for me for something stupid and selfish that I did. So that, that helps me to want to choose to do what is right with whatever kind of will or freedom that I have. Right. 
and their attitude is not like there's a thief in the house. Their yeah. attitude is, Dad's home. Yeah. Like, you know, we're yeah. so excited that the one we love has returned for us. You know, it's a totally different attitude for the. It's people. a surprise of expectation and fulfillment versus. Like those videos of, I don't know, you know, those videos where a dad comes home from like serving the military for like a year, and the little kid's got like a blindfold on and he's trying to do the pinata or something, and then his dad's like pulling the pinata, he doesn't know his dad, and then he takes off his thing and he sees his dad and he could care less about the candy and he just like hugs his dad and he's so happy that his dad's back because he hasn't seen him for like a year because his dad's been on duty. That's gonna be the attitude more of a Christian. It's not going to be like a thief is in the house. The kid doesn't be like, oh, no, dad's home and runs away from us. He's so excited, you know? That's, that's what that verse is talking about. That's talking about the way we receive the return of the Lord. So when you have faith in Christ, his return is going to be a beautiful thing. What if your dad is a thief? Are you professionally robbing your own house? Dang. Henry's got a hamster, and his hamster is sometimes breaks out of the cage and then comes into my room to try to rob stuff. And so he's startled me a couple times in the middle of the night. I'm like, little Terry. Are you serious? Yeah. Because it's the the beauty of the the father that we love, right? Didn't really steal anything, but she would have if I would have been there. This is for people that that have an earthly father who left them or Scripture talks about God being our Father. It's talking about what a perfect Father should be. That's what God is to us in terms of being our Father. He's not a Father who's going to rough us up every time we do something wrong. He's not a Father who's going to like take off and spend all the money on gambling and we don't have any food, money for food. He's not like you know so many earthly fathers let us down. Even good fathers who try their very best. Like I tell my boys, there are going to be times when I let you down. I'm not as good as your Father in heaven. He's perfect. I'm not. And so. When you think about God as being Father, when you recognize that, that, that means the perfect kind of Father. The, father, the father that you always wanted to have is Father. Or even didn't know how to be Father. Think about that too. Okay. Uh, Thank you.